Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. And I'm Aaron Powell. Joining us today is Peter Van Doren, Senior Fellow at the Cato Institute and editor of Regulation Magazine. Welcome back to the show, Peter. Thanks for having me. This is going to be a good Peter's been thinking about things and reading things episodes, and he can teach me and Aaron about all these quantitative things in economics uh, as he edits regulation and, and reads his papers. I'd like to start uh, with something that you talked about a few weeks ago, salmon. I, li- I like salmon. Uh, salmon's very good. But there's currently, or there has been a longstanding fight about GMO salmon going on. Yes, longstanding. I since the you know nineteen eighty nine. Right, so this goes back before I was at Cato and before you thought about uh, coming to Cato, or though you thought from the womb. So I guess that that's uh, incorrect. <laughs> Trevor was thinking about it in elementary school. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> so basically, libertarian dilemma, which is, what do you do when the population? is very suspicious of genetically modified organisms, even though the best science, and I mean, we can talk about what we mean by that, but then it's like COVID, right? So science, and we've had discussions of science. So here's a, a, so if libertarians are into letting people do what they want, it turns out they don't want GMO salmon. (laughs) And the political process basically reflects those views. And the minority of geeks and others that think that GMO salmon would provide high-quality, low-cost protein to a, a needy population and the planet, uh, well, those people might as well, you know, uh, uh, try to swim up Niagara Falls. I mean, it's 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 so. After a generation of discussion by the FDA and then various. Uh, attempts by the the Alaska congressional delegation to protect its regular salmon industry against GMO competition. Uh, GMO salmon is has been officially approved by the FDA uh, for the United States and has to be labeled, and we can talk about that, has to be labeled as genetically modified, which of course the company did not want because knowing how the population is against Frankenstein food. Um, it wanted to say and and argued scientifically, this is salmon, and it's not different than native salmon. It's just salmon that grows faster, and we do it in agriculture, and we we and therefore it's cheaper. It's not a luxury food caught on the line. It it now can be mass produced, um, but um, the analysis that I gave in regulate or the article in regulation said that basically all the prominent supermarket chains won't sell this salmon. <laughs> so as libertarians, we have to re- respect the fact that they are reflecting vast consumer sentiment against this. And yet the science part of us is kind of uh, saying, oh, okay, this can't be right, right? Don't Can't we do something so that People whose misguided preferences are driving this process um, can't be dealt with somehow through the state. Well, then we're uh oh. Now we're you see what I'm saying. So we, so I've spun and spun and spun my head around this, trying to figure out um, a way out. And and as best I can tell, there isn't. 
um, in to be consistent with our views, which is we respect people's views, but what do we do if everyone's view is crazy? And and this is this is so. I'd actually like to hear what you folks uh, think about this, or whether um, th- there's a way out that I haven't thought about. Isn't prices the way out of this? So if you've got you've got a new product, a novel product. I mean, it's not not it's not that novel, but it's it's novel to most people, and they're a little bit worried about the risks. And so they would rather spend their money on what they see as comparatively risk-free non-GMO salmon that's had you know the full normal salmon lifespan or whatever. Wouldn't the solution just be that the the provider needs to get some people to take the risk on this to kind of prove that it's not killing people or turning them into X-Men or whatever in the marketplace? And so you just lower the price – of this alternative salmon until it hits a point where people are willing to take the risk. And then presumably when they don't all die, then you can raise the price back up again because now there is, you know, not kind of eggheads writing papers evidence, but like my neighbor ate this stuff and seems to be fine evidence. Yes, that's the normal economic answer. I'll I'll throw in one stylized fact that I haven't uh, uh, talked about yet, which is most of the salmon we see at Whole Foods or anywhere is not wild caught, right? It's not caught by those Alaska fishermen that were being defended by the Alaska congressional delegation. Instead, the competitor for this GMO salmon is aquaculture salmon grown in ocean pens rather than th- this GMO salmon would be grown in pens on land, totally in land in Indiana, right? Just with salt water. Whereas now most salmon that we buy in the supermarket is actually so-called farm raised, but it's in the ocean and thus is natural and is cheaper than the luxury wild caught line or so-called line caught salmon that you may see sometimes. So we actually have three kinds of salmon. We have GMO salmon, we have aquaculture, in the ocean salmon, which has pollution issues and and they they use antibiotics and you know all sorts of stuff to because these salmon and aquaculture are densely raised, right, which has disease issues, et cetera. So and then so-called line caught. So so the GMO salmon has to it, its competitor isn't really line caught, which is rare and expensive. Its competitor is this aquaculture salmon, which it's just labeled North Atlantic salmon in Whole Foods. It's not labeled as, you know, again, people don't, I'm not sure how much consumers, I haven't, I don't know focus group evidence enough to know how much people focus on the line caught versus the name North Atlantic. I think they say, and, they say farmed salmon. You can see like the, that is okay. part of the labeling and that seems to matter to some people. But this whole question about the labeling is interesting because- as you said, the GMO company did not want to be labeled GMO because it's just saying, you know, just like we did with cows, we make them grow faster and bigger than they would be otherwise, and we don't label this beef to be GMO beef, at least not always. Um, so it, how do we feel about the labeling issue? Because sometimes the label could actually hurt the company um, if it is, you know, not a relevant fact that the consumer needs to know in order to make a, a, a good purchase. Or I guess we just kind of don't care though, because if someone doesn't want to eat GMO, then that's sufficient, correct? Well, but let me just ask quickly on the cattle thing. Is it the case that the cattle that grows 
faster and meatier and so on is GMO that we're eating, or is it that it's been given hormones, which is not quite the same thing? Actually, the the hormone discussion involves milk cattle, not beef, right? So it's actually um, stimulating milk production among dairy cows, and it is uh, cows have this hormone, but the there is an artificial version of the hormone that is given to cows, and this led to a labeling fight 25 years ago, um, in which I've, I've, I call it the classic American compromise. And, and <laughs> if you go to your supermarket and look uh, carefully at milk, uh, some you will see is labeled as not, the, uh, the milk comes from cows, not given this uh, artificial version of a normal cow milk hormone. And then by that statement is an asterisk, which directs you to finer print elsewhere on the label, which says, oh, by the way, there's no scientific evidence that this matters at all for anything. And so I, I, to me, it's classic American compromise, which is to keep everyone happy. We have the label that organic uh, milk producers can use, which says we don't use this bad stuff. Then there's <laughs> another part of the same label, which says, oh, by the way, there's no scientific evidence that any of this matters, but but we want to make you feel like you're in accord with your preferences, which are against this stuff. So we do it this way. We label it this way. Well, that's like the dairy where your family background in the dairy industry, but this salmon fight, which again, like I would totally buy some GMO salmon if I could figure out where to buy some, but apparently it's very difficult at least with the grocery stores that are around here. But the salmon fight food fights, quote unquote, food fights like this, regulatory food fights are pretty knockdown drag out. I mean, I know the dairy industry really likes to go after people who call themselves milk and people who call themselves, you know, organic and all this stuff. But it's, it just seems like everyone has a, is a sort of skin in the game here uh, and they'll fight it out at, at the- And a lot of it's level. over language. That's mm -hmm. what's interesting for to people like us. It's like, really? So if you go way back, remember, I mean, you're too young, but- the introduction of margarine threatened butter than the, the traditional dairy industry. And there were laws in Wisconsin that said that margarine could not be colored yellow. I mean, and that now we know that margarine actually was really, I mean, it really was harmful to human health. And we now know that the trans fat issue. And so that margarine's kind of gone away as a sort of uh, progressive. It, it, it used to be a, you know, a cheaper alternative to butter, and it was thought to to, to be, um, again, help people of low income to have a butter substitute and all that. But there were there were coloring fights, right, over over butter. Um, yes, these. Uh, so part. So we've had articles in regulation where people with science backgrounds argue libertarians should not allow labeling if there's no scientific basis for the label. And then other libertarians will say, no, I mean, if, if people have, you know, a right to know stuff and, and saying and trying to say all salmon is the same, which has a scientific basis, which I believe, if other people don't believe that, then you have people claiming they have a right to know this stuff. And oh, my goodness, it just goes round and round and round. So again, I want to um, hear what you guys sort of as outside, you're libertarian, but not really 
haven't been active participants in thinking about this. And so libertarians, we always say that, oh, if we just got the government out of the way, everything would work. And it's like, well, this one, so who decides how things are labeled? Should the, I mean, should we just have a, what economists call a separating equilibrium in which there's literally a food fight where we just have label fights and they go, well, you can't label it that way, or it's really not milk. It is milk. Or well, it's, the, it's this old question of uh, ex ante, ex post to some extent in pre FDA, pre modern regulatory food inspection regimes. Uh, it would have been illegal at common law to sell something that you said was beef that was not in fact beef. Um, and that you would develop that law, I mean, now you could get into the nuances of, you know, what if it is a hormone, you know, infused cow or if it, or if it's GMO salmon, can we call it that? But I feel like doing it with the public good in mind and say, do people actually care about this? Or is it just regulatory capture that's creating this problem? So how would you think that a tort would work? Let's, I mean, go back again. There's no regulation. There's just tort. Is labeling salmon is salmon that is GMO salmon. And we know that, but in fact, the label doesn't say that. Is that mislead? Could someone bring a common, in your view, a, a common lawsuit? Well, there is an old- That said mislabeling and when? Well, it's like a fraud type of suit. Uh, now, the question again, I think, is what a judge would do that in a common law situation is to kind of focus on damages and whether or not the consumer you know, really has an actionable claim because it didn't say GMO salmon on them. Uh, so it, it's going to be a similar type of situation, I guess, as the FDA, but it might be more consumer focused that it would be prone to regulatory capture, which I think is a concern that we have when we have that ex, ex anti regulatory environment. Well, that brings me to my general thought about this, which is this kind of food fight where you have new foods and you have consumer sentiments and you have competing producers and you have a regulatory regime is that this seems like a perfect bootleggers and Baptist storm in that you have – I mean obviously you have the producers who want to corner the market and prevent competition whether that's you know higher quality competition or cheaper competition or whatever. But on the other side, on the, the Baptist side, food is so bound up in notions of purity and sanctity and wellness and it's, it's a product. It's one thing if I wear a t-shirt, but this is something that I'm putting into my body and you know, our, all of the, the great religions have all sorts of weird rules about food because – People get weird about this kind of stuff. And and so the labeling, it's not just about informing, but the very fact that you call this something different than what people are used to weirds people out. And like, am I really going to, you know, what is this thing I'm putting into my body? And that that gives, you know, so then you can have these kind of panics about are GMOs really dangerous or not, or are they the kind of things that we should be eating? And the government can have an interest in that, either driven from a sense of the common good and wanting to protect people or from you know just my constituents are scared about this thing, I should do something, whether they're right or not. But then you have all of these hooks then for the food industry and the legacy producers to you know they they know that even if it's not dangerous putting a label saying this is different can be enough to turn people off 
because of the odd nature of food. And so this seems like if you, it would be hard to set up a stronger example of all of these different actors with understandable sometimes and corrupt or nefarious other times motives playing off of each other. Correct. Yeah, that's I think that's well put. And like I said, but go back to Trevor's. So a basic thing like is salmon salmon or what is salmon? And I know there's a fight now in the milk industry that the, you know, the oat milk and the almond milk, the dairy industry does not want those products to have the word milk in, right? It's, they want it. These are weird plant-based things and this isn't consistent with American heritage, right? Kind of thing. And, and so this, uh, the fight over language so what is milk, right? Can can <laughs> the, can plant-based milk alternatives use the word milk? Well, yeah, that, this is not new. This isn't new. This was yeah. going on when you were growing growing up yeah. too. Not just with margarine, with everything. Yeah. Are there three kind? There, I mean, technically, there are three kinds of salmon. There's line caught. There's aquaculture, and then there's the new GMO stuff. So, should they all just be called salmon or? Again, as libertarians, should we say, let them have at it and they can call it whatever they want and we'll see what happens. I mean, is it right? And uh, I think I prefer that to the, to the regulatory capture aspect to it because as you – I mean the dairy industry in particular uh, – no offense to your family, Peter, but no, if, they, if, they were, uh, if they were self-respectable <laughs> – well, I mean they, they kind of just use the government as – you know, mafiosos who come to your house and with a pipe and say, hey, would it be a shame to have something happened to your dairy industry? You know, like, I mean, for example, uh, 1922, the Filled Milk Act of 1922 or 23, uh, filled milk was was basically taking skim milk, which at that time was trash. People, I mean, it was, it was not very common to drink skim milk. And then cutting it with usually some sort of extra fat, often like fish fat, and it was cheaper for poor people. Uh, and it was cannibal. You didn't have to have an icebox, a refrigeration to keep it. It's sort of like evaporated milk today. And and they put it. They they went to Congress and they said uh, this is disrupting a vital national industry, the dairy industry. Uh, and it resulted. One of the things that resulted in is a Supreme Court case called Caroline Products, uh, where they tried to sue on this question with famous footnote four. But yeah, the dairy industry has just long. I mean, you have the milk fund. I mean, they're, they're just long, you know, need, sort of needed government regulation or at least don't know how to live without it. And they send the government after you if you uh, if you don't if they don't like what you're doing. Well, my great uncle introduced uh, pasteurized milk testing into northern New York. So he was very proud of that scientific achievement. But uh, yes, the dairy industries, uh, they're always against government except for them. And it's it's. Uh, William Proxmire, you remember the senator from Wisconsin, always had the Golden Fleece Awards uh, back when I was young. And uh, he never once uh, had a Golden Fleece Award for the dairy industry because that was what Wisconsin was all about. And and lots of upstate New York as well. So, um, How much do the regulations that would affect grocery stores factor into this? Because if – if 
part of the problem is that the existing grocery stores are not willing to sell this stuff. The incumbents are not willing to sell this stuff. But new entrants might be willing to, especially if they think that they're, you know, they can they can brand as like we are the future of food. Just like, you know, there's the astronaut ice cream you could buy at museum gift shops and you bought it because it was weird. Like maybe there's an, a market for weird salmon. Um, but are there are there regulatory barriers to new entrants into the grocery market? Not the grocery market, but but the the question of whether GMO food had to face regulatory hurdles be, be to, before being introduced into the marketplace, that's taken 25 years to resolve. And uh, it was, they finally concluded that it should be governed by veterinary medicine uh, statutes <laughs> and it's like oh anyway it's it's uh and then we you know then there's the whole nutrition labeling thing which has been introduced in our right standard right so so if you read consumer reports or kind of any conventional mainstream quasi left of center consumer rights sort of literature they find our world of anyone can say anything about food to be so full of crap, it is. It is. It is just a monster that needs to be tamed, and thus we now have standardized nutrition labels. Because Kellogg said, "Fruit Loops are really good for kids," right? And it turns out, if 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 ninety thousand grams of sugar in the morning aren't maybe aren't so good for kids, and it gets them hopping around, uh, you know, the labeling people said. Kellogg's can't or ought not to say that stuff. And so, whereas in our world, yeah, they can, you know what, it's wonderful chocolate, uh, Count Chocula, right? My favorite bad breakfast cereal. Uh, what was the one that defend... was like a bowl of cookies? You remember that one, <laughs> yeah. Aaron? There was one that was like literally a bowl of cookies. It's like chocolate. Cookie crisp. Cookie crisp, yeah. Well, because, was... you know, kids like sugar. I mean, it, it's obvious that Aaron has children. He knows that that, those kind of cereals will often keep peace in the morning, right? Even if it charges them up by 11 for great mischief. At that point, they're the teacher's problem. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, most just most people are not in favor of our chaotic, a thousand f ways of speech, bloom view of labeling, and think that the consumer needs to be aided into making quote, better choices. But as you said, once that you've got Baptists on the better side, then you've got the bootleggers trying to figure out how to label whatever it is they have to, uh, so that it, it it's advantaged by this process. So moving in, we have a thousand different types of speech, as you mentioned, a thousand speech flowers blooming. Um, and there's another article you discuss uh, in, it was discussed in a recent regulation about the Section 230, the ubiquitous, never going away Section 230, and how this is. We had Jeff Kossoff on the show a few weeks ago, who wrote the book Twenty Six Words that created the internet um, to allow for moderation uh, without liability. What is the paper you you talk about? How do big how do big tech firms or how do firms use this to their advantage? Well, just a, a little background. Most. I think most lay people think of 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 uh, antitrust policy as the you know the the little government no certainly not libertarians think of it that but they think of it in David versus Goliath terms the government is often portrayed as 
having six hands tied behind its back and big corporations need to be you know brought to heel because of their bad behavior well this article by Tom Lambert in regulation said uh, r reminds the the reader that there's lots of private antitrust suits the antitrust laws allow private actions and those private actions are just full of what we call bootlegger and Baptist mischief uh, a bootlegger right a very little Baptist and um, I was fascinated. I did not know the details of, of these kinds of, of struggles. And uh, I'll give you... Uh, so basically, it's firms that... Uh, well, Google and Facebook and, and these Section 230 uh, exempt platforms, the, the, just for our listeners, right? Section 230 of the Telecommunications Act says that if you're operating an internet platform and you don't, and you have user generated content, the normal legal liabilities of publishers regarding libel and, and, and lying and things like that, that a publisher would be uh, held responsible for, the, uh, the operator of a platform is not, right? And that many people believe, in, including Cato, that Section 230 allowed the internet to flourish because it just allowed lots of people to uh, interact with others. One pro well, some things people interact with with others though are illegal and or nasty and or whatever. The the, the one where we first had intervention was um, child sex trafficking. Uh, that certainly we would say is not a good thing. And uh, so, how do you hold the platform? How do you stop that kind of transaction from occurring on a on a platform? Well, Oracle and, Oracle and IBM lobbied extensively uh, for that modification to Section 230, which in fact was the first. It did come into law in, in, uh, in I think, 2017, 2018. And uh, it turns out the reason that Oracle and IBM are for these things is because they compete with Google and Amazon for cloud computing services. Right, they operate a competitor to Google and Amazon for the cloud, but they don't operate platforms. So, if you want to raise your rival's cause, if you want to divert a firm's attention away from something that they compete with for, with you, divert their attention onto sex trafficking because that doesn't bother Oracle and IBM, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And IBM also is into art, artificial intelligence. And, and you remember the pro, uh, the Watson computer that uh, that beat people on Jeopardy over and over again a while ago. There are now versions of that that help uh, platforms monitor for child sex trafficking and child pornography, and thus IBM sells a product whose demand would be increased by this provision amending Section Two Thirty. What is this general rule on? just sort of maybe taking a step back as we talked about it in terms of salmon and dairy and now talking about it with the tech industry. Libertarians say this a lot that uh, big businesses like regulation or, or they don't, they're not necessarily averse to it. And that when people say, Oh, we're going to bring big business to heel with this regulatory environment and the big business will be fighting tooth and nail to not be regulated. Why is that so often not true in the big picture? Um, a lot of regulatory compliance involves what economists call fixed costs. 
and and if you're bigger then the fixed costs of compliance of any given regulation are lower as a percent of your revenues or your profits the bigger you are so small firms have to face the same fixed costs for compliance and thus that can put them put them under and 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 off and sometimes out of business so uh, uh, some examples of the the European privacy initiatives regarding of uh, the tech things like Google and Facebook, right? We people are now aware that, they, that there's things called cookies. Cookies gather information about your browsing habits. That information goes to help digital advertisers target which people to who should receive digital advertising, and it's. Um, so from an advertising point of view, digital advertising is much more efficient because the set of consumers likely to react to it are very targeted, whereas normal newspaper and television advertising just goes to everybody, most of it's wasted, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So from an advertising standpoint, cookies are very useful for, for targeting. Um, the European Privacy Initiative, and some of which is leaking over into the United States as well, that uh, made the normal ways in which Google and Facebook gathered information um, and also all other web advertisers through cookies, it, it made that uh, much more difficult to, you, you had to opt into all of this. And there, were, there was language that said, you didn't have to ask consumers so much if you had a regular interaction with them. So Google and Facebook do have regular interactions with the users of Google and Facebook, and therefore the hurdle for them to comply, not only were they bigger, but the language was written in such a way that they would have lower regulatory compliance. So the economists have studied the digital advertising market in Europe and found that the share occupied by Facebook and, and Google actually went up after the imposition of these regulations. So that's sort of example of how Existing firms really don't uh, resist regulation in the way that it's often portrayed in the media. For some firms, it actually can benefit them, and that would be uh, an example. What is the consumer harm in all this, though, particularly in this space? Because if we've we we have a set of regulations that the the people pushing for them think are protecting people. In meaningful ways, i.e., like businesses left unregulated are going to do these things that are harmful to people, so we're going to regulate them. And one effect of this is that, you know, if it takes five lawyers to deal with the details of a new regulation, five lawyers, Facebook already has them on staff, or hiring them is a drop in the bucket versus the new startup hiring five lawyers. It's a it's a substantial cost to them. But especially in the tech space, these companies seem to be there. It's not just that there is a single incumbent large firm and the only competition is small firms, but there are big firms that can all afford those five lawyers competing with each other. And it does seem like a lot of these large firms are quite innovative. You know, Facebook and Apple and Google are always putting on 
these big presentations of look at this cool new stuff we're working on that's groundbreaking and we're changing everything we're doing to the point of, you know, Facebook changing its entire name and corporate branding because it wants to pivot into something radically new. So is this is this a problem? Should we either, I mean, as libertarians or just generally people who care about a well-functioning market and consumers in that market care much about this? Well, I've I've gone back and forth on this in my own head. I mean, a year ago, I had a conversation with our colleague, Matt Feeney, in which I said, after thinking about this, I said, the market of internet services that are provided for free are not market goods, right? So we should talk not talk about the market for uh, social media services or whatever, or it, but the, there is a market for advertising. So then I said to Matt in a kind of flip way, I said, well, who the F cares about what is the, is the, are we going to have any trust cases over, over whether the advertising market is more or less efficient? I said, is that, is that where this is headed? And it turns out, yes, that, I mean, and I was flip and I kind of dismissed it. But now the more I've read, the more I realized it, efficient advertising reduces entry barriers for other businesses to sell stuff. And so the New York Times, to its credit, has actually interviewed a bunch of small businesses in which um, the, the, the it's sort of a kind of a discontinuity experiment in which Facebook and Google changed some some <clears throat> of their privacy settings, not because of any of the regulatory things we're talking about, but just because it turns out uh, American consumer, American users have been hepped up about this because of the European rules. So lots of Americans on their own now worry about privacy. Subtle changes in the way Google and Facebook have dealt with defaults in their interaction with users have led to some, I mean, the Times easily found small businesses whose sales dropped dramatically because the advertising for those firms was no longer easily available because of the lack of cookies that those small firms used in the targeting of, of their advertising. I said, well, okay, there's, I mean, so it's that kind of, that's why it might matter, which is the, the entry of small sellers that use t targeted digital advertising to sell very niche products to, you know, consumers that that uh, appears to have been impeded or may be impeded by these kinds of, of privacy initiatives. Yeah, that seems pretty big effect because if you, I mean, I see people all the time, Etsy, or you create a little bit of a bigger business making some very, as you said, niche product. Um, and the only but, you know, specialization is limited by the extent of the market, as we know. But if, so if you make, a, um, I, had a, I had a friend who used to make guitars out of turtle shells for example, not endangered turtle shells or anything, but like it's a very niche market. So, so his targeted advertising would have been great if, but if he gets hamstrung on that, it'd be very hard to start that business. Cause there might be, you know, 37 people in the world who want to buy one of these, but that might, he need, he needs to talk to all 37 of those people to make his business go. Cause I mean, th these kinds of small businesses have flourished only in the largest urban settings traditionally before the internet. In other words, they just, there's a weird store selling something in Manhattan, right? That's that's why cities exist because once the population gets large enough, you can have one of these sellers to serve 10 million people. 
What the internet does is allow all sorts of merchants that aren't in urban areas to have internet traffic in a for similarly, you know, narrow or weird goods of the sort that you're describing. And as best I can tell, there's some evidence that um, privacy concerns and then the change in in targeted advertising, or at least the increase in the expense of targeted advertising, uh, inhibits entry. Uh, of those kinds of firms outside of large cities that depend on foot tra- in the old traditional foot traffic kind of way. And they could use mail order. I mean, again, we had Montgomery Ward and Sears that had catalogs. And I mean, the internet is just a way to, to update from my, you know, country upbringing. It's just like, it's, it's just mail order updated. So it's certainly possible to have mail order, but the traditional postal system and its costs are much, much higher than uh, sending things electronically, where the the cost approaches zero. When you mentioned that you know Europe changes the rules to block a certain kind of targeted advertising, um, and that upends the market, prevents easier entry for new people, and so on, my immediate thought was: so I just did some quick googling and. This number sounds roughly right, that Apple owns 53% of the smartphone market, um, which means that an extraordinary number of people who are accessing anything that has ads in it online are doing it through their iPhone. And Apple recently changed the way that the operating system that runs the iPhone handles essentially third-party tracking and change the rules of, you know, you want to get an Apple's app store to block it, it, The main one was the little tracking cookies that are in when someone sends you a marketing email, there's a little piece of code in there that lets them know I've sent X number of them and Y number of people have opened it and Z number of people have clicked links and so on. And Apple has blocked a lot of that. So they, they've kind of blown up that marketing industry. And Apple's not a state, they're not Europe, but if they control 53% of the market for, like, they they have that influence, they basically have a regulatory power over 53% of the market for advertising on smartphones, does that mean that we should also be concerned about Apple kind of pulling the rug out in the same way that we'd be concerned about Europe doing it? Well, uh, as always, Aaron is very good eventually in our episodes at making Ralph Nader arguments. And then we, we, we have threatened to, to, uh, tell the Cato authorities about this. But, uh, and, and anyway, I mean, the reason Ralph Nader isn't totally crazy is because Aaron, I mean, that's why, right? Which is when large firms, uh, can be large enough to engage in mischief. And that's why the American people every now and then uh, go back to an agent statute and worry about antitrust. I mean, it's uh, so uh, I've said before, I think in our discussions, uh, at least in the hallway, if not on these podcasts, that in theory, libertarians maybe should be for antitrust because a lot of our beliefs hinge on there being choice, which hinges on it being there being enough competition. So can we think of settings in which there's not enough competition and maybe we should do something about it? Now, if Jeff Myron were here, he would slap me in the face and say, Peter, we believe, and again, but this is empirical, this is in theory, which is most settings in which there's corporate power, there's some sort of government regulation behind it, which 
in effect restricts entry in some way and doesn't allow the the choice that Aaron was was describing. In terms of smartphone entry and smartphone use, people, I mean, Apple has a good product and people use the iPhone and there's fringe competition from the Android, right? The Google system competitors that are much, 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 much cheaper. Um, and so the question is whether that competition is enough, right? And that's an empirical, I mean, it's uh, in the end, a judgment call. And I'm, I don't, I don't, I can't quote any, even though you say I read a lot of papers and I, I do, but I haven't seen a paper that deals directly with your question uh, in a way. To, but I think there will be papers on that question because um, Apple is, um, well, libertarians don't know how to, but do we declare it to be powerful or not? I mean, is that a word we're, Aaron was hinting. I, I bet they feel pretty powerless would be my guess. To, <laughs> well, I mean, this is the thing, not you're obviously, you're correct that there are, of course, rapacious businesses who will cut corners and don't, don't really care about a lot of things uh, in terms of safety or things like this. But in this world, I feel like Apple, you know, things can change really quickly. In five years from now, Apple could lose, you know, 50% of its market share. That could easily happen, like very, very easily. And that would seem to be the biggest concern of, of that. So, that, I mean, that kind of gets to my question about antitrust more broadly. It's like one of the libertarian lines is that, you know, usually – if you wait just a little bit longer from the moment that they start bringing antitrust suits, you'll you'll probably see this company disappear and your pretend monopoly is gone, um, and that that's I usually certainly, the best. I think way. the evidence the evidence for that is stronger in the Facebook sense, right? Which is that younger people think of Facebook as only for older people. I mean, I, if I think the, the stuff I've read about Facebook is they're very worried about of quote their dominance of the social interaction social media market however whatever word you want to use to describe it on the apple side i mean apple's been pricing itself very high for a long right for when was the iphone oh five oh six are we now i think it was oh eight right 15 i think it was oh eight. okay oh eight um so we're in year you know 13 and Aaron gave us a number, and so the the kind of Android low price competition has nibbled away what half half of what it started out with, which is a hundred percent. And I I don't know enough. Do you know enough about the trends to know what's going on? Is that enough competition? Well, to- Apple didn't. I mean. Apple never had a hundred percent of the market that's been whittled down. You know, there was they came into a market that had Nokia and others and they and there were smartphones at the time that Apple entered the market and they happened to make one that got a large share because it was, you know, worlds better than the other smartphones and they took market share away from a lot of the incumbents. But I do think one difference here is you know, so Apple, if you ask Apple why they changed these settings, what they say is not, you know, we wanted to pull the rug out from under digital advertising, but that one of the reasons people buy our products is because they trust us to keep their privacy safe online. And, you know, we, unlike our competitors, are not in the market ourselves and selling advertising. 
And so we want to protect you from having your data vacuumed up and people tracking you and so on. And so we've changed this to for the regard of our consumer. And that that sounds a lot like the reasons that, say, Europe passes the laws limiting this stuff, like Apple's, you know, kind of coming to the same sort of conclusion, but they, because they control the platform, they don't need to put it to a vote and they can just make the change and whoever updates iOS uh, gets, you know, is now in this new pseudo-regulatory regime. But I think that the difference, one big difference is, you know, we talk about the the powers of voice and exit as as checks on government and it is <clears throat> even if apple has 50% or whatever it is of the smartphone market um it's a lot easier to exit apple than it is to exit europe you know like i i had an iphone for years and then a few years ago switched to a google phone and it was you know it was easy and it wasn't you know and i could switch back again if i wanted to and i think that that is that is a big difference here is that if it turns out that there is a market for whatever this kind of you know tracking advertising enables people can switch um whereas it's it's hard to move out of europe if you want a different you can do it but it's it costs more than buying a google pixel yes political political change is not nimble i think your point is our usual claims about any trust is is exactly what you say which is um yeah, there's some nastiness going on out there, but governments can't change very fast. And by the time any trust cases get solved, the product they're worried about is no longer important, <laughs> right? In the tech sphere so, especially. But it, it always struck me as weird doing some of this antitrust analysis where you, you, you kind of have to make some metaphysical assumptions about what the market is, uh, what consumer welfare is, uh, who is competing against who. Because you know, if you were talking about some antitrust case against, say, a movie theater, like a local movie theater, um, you could have that movie theater competing against other movie theaters, or it's competing against going to the park or staying home and watching TV, or it's competing against the entire market for entertainment. And I think that's even true, you know, people could maybe say that smartphones are some sort of necessity, but I mean, it's even truer, like, you know, what is Apple competing against? They're competing against other consumer electronic goods that people could spend money on. So, it just seems to me at the end that it's just really difficult to – I know that you probably know, Peter, that there's a bunch of you know economists who get paid a lot of money at the Federal Trade Commission and who, who get paid by private firms to do these big analyses of whether or not something is hurting competition. But does, does the whole thing strike you as like much more difficult than, than it often is portrayed to, to figure no, out? No, you've hit the – I mean what you need to know – is the cross elasticities of demand and supply given that so if the price of an iPhone changes in an upwards direction, what happens to the prices of and then you need to fill in the blank, right? A fancy way of just saying what you said, which is how do you fill in the blank of after of? And if you could limit it to other little weird things held in your hand, right? Or you could say, Wow, you could, you know, what, 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 if it turns out people think of going to the movies or watching sports or doing or baking cakes as, as possible substitutes for an overpriced phone. And, and if that, then you'd have to actually estimate those elasticities, but you'd have to first conceptually think of what are the possible substitutes. And the answer to that 
isn't impure. It's steered, right? So <clears throat> you're back to the sky's the limit, then we don't know what to do. But you're right, economists have second and third and fourth homes paid for by the um, the antitrust consulting business. Whenever, you'll, it's a sidebar, whenever I try to get people, economists, to write about antitrust and regulation, and I ask them to make the text a little punchier, they don't. They do not want to do this because you never know who your next consultant is, is who your next consulting gig is going to be for. So they are they are very, very careful about trying to sort of be above the fray and say the truth, but actually not say anything. <laughs> so, anyway. So it's good to be skeptical about antitrust, but as you said, it, it's not, I agree with you in the sense that it's not that I can, in every instance of antitrust, I can say, you know, I oppose or use of antitrust laws, I oppose. I can imagine some real monopolies, uh, but more often than not, they kind of disappear. Problem is people, they, they may not, there's a tension between what constituents are worried about. And often antitrust is a kind of vessel in which all sorts of fears get put and they're not well thought out and not well, I mean, they're not analytically coherent from our point of view or any point of view, but politics isn't. Politics is people worried about stuff and they want to, uh, the legislators to show that they care about something that constituents are worried about. And so antitrust suits can be a very useful way to kind of coalesce all that and still not do much and win elections, right? Which is in the end what politics has to be about. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at libertarianism.org.